Welcome to Wake Up. So glad to have you here with us today. I have the privilege of bringing you this breakdown from a constitutional perspective, but also from an original intent perspective. The original intent is the only true and proper way to apply a constitution. And I know that's controversial, but that's only controversial because we stopped teaching the truth about the Constitution. The Constitution is a contract. That is not a theory. That is a fact. It is a contract because the people who wrote and ratified the document referred to it over and over and over again as a compact, which is a form of a contract. And when you lack understanding of a term or a section in a contract, you don't go looking around for other people to tell you what it means. You don't go to courts to interpret a meaning. The first place you go when understanding a contract is the meeting of the minds, the drafters of the contract. In this particular case, we are going to be concerned with the drafters of the Second Amendment, a well-regulated militia being necessary for the security of the free state, the right of the people to keep and bear arms shall not be infringed. That is our operating text today. And the only true defining and relevant understanding of that clause comes from those who actually debated, voted, wrote, ratified this clause into law, into the to the Bill of Rights, incorporating it into the Constitution of the United States. So the question before us, New York State v. New York State Rifle v. v. Bruin, is New York's current law where you must prove that you have a proper cause to carry a firearm outside of your house. You must justify to the government a reason to which they believe rises to the level of granting you permission to carry a firearm outside your house, specifically a handgun. And this law comes under strict scrutiny by the Supreme Court of the United States, releasing its opinion this morning. Let me just be very clear to you about a couple things before we get into this. You will never hear me say the Supreme Court ruled or the Supreme Court ruling. I will never say those things because kings issue rulings, courts issue opinions. And there is a distinction, a distinction that should be understand, understood from the American people that this is not a body that rules over us. This is a body that offers its opinions regarding laws, and their application through the Constitution. And so what I want to do is give you a really brief breakdown right here on what this case, what this opinion does not do, what this opinion actually does do, and what we learn from the opinion about the Supreme Court itself and its understanding, not just simply of the Second Amendment, but of our rights. And then we're going to go into a more in-depth look at the case itself. For those of you who want the more in-depth look, stick around with us after the breakdown. And in the breakdown, I'm just going to give you some bare facts. But in the understanding 
in the in-depth view. I will actually show you from the terms of the text itself, from the opinion itself, why what I'm telling you is absolutely true. So what does this Supreme Court opinion not do? Well, I'm not sure what the media is going to spin it out because much like the impending opinion on the application of abortion laws at the state level, I anticipate much of what you will hear from the media will be highly exaggerated, over-emotionalized, with a great deal of spin, which is why I was felt it important to bring this to you as soon as possible to help counter the fear, the factor, the emotional spin, and the manipulation that comes from the exaggeration of the media, the politicians, and the pundits who are just simply looking for higher ratings and more followers. So let me explain to you what this opinion does not do. First and foremost, this opinion does not change anything in any other state. I don't know how to say it any simpler than that. This opinion does nothing to change anything in any other state. And when you uh, stick around afterwards and I show you through the uh, opinion itself, we're going to hear from Kavanaugh, who's going to tell you that exact thing itself. This opinion does, change, does not change anything about any other state. Number two, this opinion does not restore a proper understanding of the individual's right shall not be infringed. As a matter of fact, once again, this Supreme Court deeply, thoughtfully analyzes every single phrase in the Second Amendment and then at best glosses over shall not be infringed. As a matter of fact, in this entire opinion, 100 what was I said? 135 pages shall not be infringed is only mentioned twice. They cannot analyze that phrase because when they do, both the conservative and the liberal justices arguments fall to pieces. So this does not change anything in any other state and it does not restore the proper understanding of an individual's rights shall not be infringed. And number three, it does not expand individual rights to keep and bear arms in the eyes of the Supreme Court or the government. So this is not an expansion of your individual right to keep and bear arms. This does not mean that other states are going to start, stop issuing permits. That's not what's going to happen here. So I don't know what somebody's going to tell you, uh, but that's not what this case does. Now, what does this case do? New York State Rifle v. Bruin, the Supreme Court reasserts D.C. v. Heller as the standard for gun control. Not the Second Amendment as the standard, but reasserts D.C. v. Heller, 2008 Supreme Court case, as the standard for gun control. Number two, this case uh, keeps in place a judicial precedent and a political understanding that the right to keep and bear arms is not actually a right, but a regulatable permission based upon justifiable needs of government. Remember, if it's a right, 
it's not something subject to government regulation. If it's subject to government regulation, then it's a privilege, a privilege that is granted to you by permission, by permit of government, with the equal authority to take it away from you. A right, as the Declaration of Independence clearly states, is inalienable. It is a natural right bestowed upon you by your creator. Unalienable, meaning government can't take it away. Which begs the very necessary question, what if I hurt someone with my gun? Isn't that the government taking my right to keep and bear arms away justifiably? And the answer to that question is simply no. Because if you hurt someone intentionally without cause, outside self-defense, with your gun, the government is not taking your right away. You have relinquished it. You have given up that right by harming another person with its use. You do not harm another person by carrying a gun. You do not harm another person by letting them see it and being scared. The only justifiable means to take someone's firearm away from them is when they hurt someone with it. Sorry, hate to give you that bad news, but if it is a right, that is the only limit it ought to know. And the Supreme Court today has reasserted that the right to keep and bear arms is not actually right. It is a privilege that is regulatable based upon justifiable needs of government. What this opinion does do is narrows the definition of justifiable needs of government. So the government in New York, the Supreme Court said, went too far with the justifiable needs of government, and they have to scale it back to the D.C. Heller standard. Now, what do we learn from this? We learn that our Supreme Court still believes government is justified to regulate our natural rights. That this Supreme Court does not agree with the definition, with the Declaration of Independence, that we hold these truths to be self-evident, that all men are created equal and endowed by their creator with certain unalienable rights. Among these life, liberty. See, you have no right to life if you have no right, individual right to defend it. If you do not possess an individual right as defined by the text of our Declaration of Independence, and as we'll see in a little bit, as defined by the founders themselves, then you don't have a right to life. You also have a permission to life. You have a permission to life bestowed upon you by whoever is tasked with defending that life for you. The only way you have a right to life is if you have a right to defend it, as Samuel Adams says, in with the best means necessary. I actually have a quote for you from Samuel Adams. Uh, Christian's going to put it up there. Samuel Adams wrote in 1772. Give me a thumbs up when we got it, Christian. 1772. Among the natural rights of the colonists are these. First, a right to life. Secondly, to liberty. Third, to property. Together, number four, 
with the right to protect and defend them in the best manner they can. That number four there is an illustration that, guess what? Your right to keep and bear arms is a natural right, a natural right that stems from the first law of nature, the duty of self-preservation. Self-preservation. Not the duty to preserve someone else's life, not the duty for the government to preserve yours. The first law of nature is your duty to preserve yourself. Stemming from that is an unalienable right to defend that life, that liberty, property, all those things necessary to the maintenance and securing of life. And so we have a Supreme Court that doesn't believe that. Still. This is still a living, breathing document court, albeit a more conservative leaning one. This opinion is full of the errant doctrine that everybody knows more about the Constitution than the people who wrote it. And that the opinions of those after 1850 are relevant in understanding the meaning of something written in 1789. I mean, seriously, when you say it that way, raise your hand. Does it, does it sound ridiculous that someone after 1850 is a better authority on the meaning of a text written in 1789 by the, than those who actually wrote the document or by those who actually ratified the document in 1791? Are we supposed to believe that the writers of 1867 know more than the drafters of the very words themselves? Raise your hand if you think that's a ridiculous statement. But that's what our Supreme Court operates on. And then finally... This Supreme Court, in its majority conservative leanings, conflates the term history with original intent. This Supreme Court, this opinion written by Clarence Thomas, and you'll notice in this that Justice Breyer, although no longer sitting on the court, Justice Breyer has a written opinion in here, you won't hear from Brown Jackson because she didn't sit through the oral arguments of these. Breyer is involved in this because, you know, unlike Ruth Bader Ginsburg, he retired, he didn't die. So he actually gets to fin at, finish out his cases. But this court throughout this document conflates history with original intent. And that's what I'm going to show you. We're going to look at the opinion itself. Don't worry. Don't freak out. We're not going to do a whole all 135 pages, but I have pulled out some very significant sections that you should uh, be aware of that helps you understand why I said what I said, that this opinion doesn't change anything in any other state. It does not restore the proper understanding of an individual's rights shall not be infringed. It doesn't expand an individual's right to keep and bear arms in the eyes of the Supreme Court or government, so don't expect any laws in any other state to change. It reasserts D.C. v. Heller uh, as the standard for gun control. Uh, keep and bear arms is not a right. 
but a regulate a regulated permission based upon justifiable government needs. But that justifiable government needs is now more narrowly defined, which, by the way, has really ticked off the governor of New York. Christian, get ready that the, the clips are uh, give me a thumbs up when we're ready to play those clips. You got them. All right. Let's play the first one, which is really short. And then give me a second. New York Governor uh, Kathy Hochul is speaking right now. Let's go to those uh, images. With the leadership, we're just looking at dates. Everyone wants a little bit of time to digest this. But I will say we are not powerless in this situation. We're not going to cede our rights that easily, despite the best efforts of the politicized Supreme Court of the United States of America. We have the. This is a very interesting statement. What the governor of New York has just explained to you is that she feels that, number one, New York is a sovereign and independent state. And number two, that the Supreme Court does not issue rulings upon New York, but offers opinions based on their law and the Constitution. And she admits that the Supreme Court can be highly politicized. This is monumental, guys. This is life-changing. When Ruth Bader Ginsburg was on the court, when they were issuing opinions about carbon credits and imposing restrictions on private business and, and their green uh, regulations of the EPA and the FDA's regulation of our firearms, these same people would have denied that a state is independent and sovereign and has a right to refuse these things. So this is monumental. This is amazing. This is absolutely fabulous that we now have more states coming on board realizing that, yes, you're not a colony. And if you don't like what the Supreme Court says, you don't have to comply. You may suffer the consequences of failing to comply, but you don't have to if you're willing to put up with those consequences, which may be, you know, lack of federal funding or a denial of certain commercial privileges. You know, there are certain things by contract that all the states enjoy. And if they do not submit to the Constitution, and unfortunately, if they don't submit to the cries of the federal government, then those are the kind of things they have to worry about. But it is still nonetheless very enlightening and very vindicating. Because if I had said that, and I did say that six years ago, I was an anti-government extremist hate group. I wonder if the governor of New York is going to be put now on the Southern Poverty Law Center's list of anti-government extremists. Just a question. Christian, are we ready with the second clip from her? All right, go ahead and play that second clip then. So they have now said that the government must demonstrate that the regulation is consistent with this, this nation's historical tradition of firearm regulation. That's it. No longer can we strike the balance. Only if a firearm regulation is consistent with this nation's historical tradition may a court conclude that the individual's conduct falls outside the Second Amendment's 
unqualified command. Shocking. Absolutely shocking. That they have talking, she says. Shocking that shall not be infringed means you have to come up with a better excuse. Shocking that shall not be infringed means you have to come up with a better excuse. Well, that you must look to history. And you'll see this throughout this opinion. Not to the Constitution. Not to the intent of the drafters. Is that a law professor tell me one time, well, you know, Chrisanne, the intent of the founders, the drafters, that's very interesting. We can't possibly know what they mean. They're dead. How are, they gonna, how are we going to find them to, to find out what they mean? Well, guess what? We know what they meant because they wrote reams and reams and reams and reams and reams about it. Just like the chosen historians of the Supreme Court who wrote what they believed it meant, the people who actually wrote it wrote what they meant. Just pfft, shocking to steal the words from the mayor, from the governor of New York. Shocking to me that we have to go outside the drafter's intent to even find meaning when they wrote so much for it. So remember point number one, this doesn't change anything in any other state. Now, this Supreme Court opinion um, I didn't put all the whole, I didn't put the whole opinion up there. It's a lot of words, but Christian's got a, the picture of the uh, style of the case. So you can see it. You can find it for yourself. Uh, does nothing to any other state. And this is, J this is Justice Kavanaugh's, um, this is Justice Kavanaugh's concurrence. And here's what he says. All right. By contrast, 43 states employ objective shall issue licensing regimes. Those shall issue regimes may require license applications to undergo fingerprinting, background check, mental health records, and training in firearms handling and in laws regarding the use of force, among other possible requirements. Going forward, therefore, the 43 states that employ objective shall issue licensing regimes for carrying handguns for self-defense may continue to do so. So what is the problem? Well, Kavanaugh tells us what the problem is. The problem is not New York's regulation that you have to get a permit to carry. The problem is how the regulation is enforced. Here's what he says. New Yorkers, uh, New York's outliers may issue, uh, may issue regime is con constitutionally problematic because it grants open-ended discretion to licensing officials and authorizes licenses only for those applicants who can show some special need apart from self-defense. So the problem is not the regulation. The problem is how it's enforced. Now, I want to also address with you this issue, like I said before, that 
the Supreme Court believes that your right to keep and bear arms is is a justifiable permission. It's not actually a right. It's justified by the needs of the government and how what we learn is that the court conflates history with original intent and that this is a living, breathing document court still. I'm going to read to you what Kavanaugh says here, and then we're going to go to what Amy Comey Barrett writes. He says, as Heller and McDonald established, and the court again explains, the Second Amendment is neither a regulatory straitjacket nor a regulatory blank check. Properly interpreted, the Second Amendment allows a variety of gun regulations. This is Justice Kavanaugh. Properly interpreted, the Second Amendment allows a variety of gun regulations. You see, if you properly read it, you know it's a regulatory straitjacket. A properly read Second Amendment a properly understood Second Amendment shows you that it is a regulatory straitjacket. But if you properly interpret it, we can do whatever the heck we want. And that's what Kavanaugh says, right? Well, how do we do this proper interpretation? Well, listen to what Amy Comey Barrett writes. The court avoids another, uh, let me try to put in my Amy Comey Barrett voice. The court avoids another ongoing scholarly debate on whether courts should primarily rely on the prevailing understanding of an individual right when the 14th Amendment was ratified in 1868 or when the Bill of Rights was ratified in 1791. This is a question. This is a scholarly question. This is a scholarly question that we need the Supreme Court to answer. That which is more relevant, what somebody wrote in 1868 or what the people who wrote the text in 1791 meant. I mean, seriously, how is this a scholarly debate? Can I tell you, I'm now wondering if Amy Comey Barrett has ever handled a contract law case or any of these scholars who engage in these scholarly debates have ever understood or had a contract law class because you see contract law says you don't go for the meaning of the contract from people who lived 70 years after the document the contract was written if you need to understand the meaning of a contract, you have to go to the people who wrote the contract in 1791. I mean, seriously, how is this even a question? How is this a scholarly debate? This is common sense, people. But remember, the only way the government can regulate your rights is through proper interpretation. And the only way you can get proper interpretation is to create new meanings beyond what the founders themselves meant. I have a series of pictures for you 
I have to give Christian a little bit of time to pull them up because they're not always in the most proper order uh, when they come up. But I want to show you a series of quotes from the people who wrote the Second Amendment. Not something that I got from a seance, mind you, but something I got from them because they wrote it contemporaneous to the writing of the Second Amendment, to the ratifying of the Second Amendment. So this court goes through an analysis of the Second Amendment, the right of the people, uh, a well-regulated militia being necessary for the security of the free state, the right of the people to keep and bear arms shall not be infringed. Like I told you, 135 pages. We're not going through the whole thing. They go through a great effort to show that the people who filed this case, this is actually their words, the people who filed this case are definitely the kind of people, just general everyday guys, that were anticipated in the right of the people to keep and bear arms. They also go into great detail to show that the militia is not one that's just government service. It's individual rights, that this is an individual right. But they miss the whole point of it because they go outside the history of it. Okay, let me... Let me show you something. Sorry, Christian, to put you on hold. But um, let me show you something from the original opinion, page 12 of the original opinion. Do I have page 11 here? I'll start here. So in assessing the post-ratification history, we looked to four different types of sources. I want you to notice in assessing post-ratification history, why wouldn't they assess ratification history? There is a very detailed written history of the entire ratification process. Why would they only rely on post-ratification? Because all the clarity comes from the ratification history, and that's what I'm going to give you, right? So four different types of sources, Thomas says. First, we reviewed three important founding error scholars who interpreted the Second Amendment in published writings. Wouldn't you like to know who their scholars were? Because I'm going to show you three scholars as well. Not the same scholars that they're going to show you. But I'm going to show you three scholars who wrote about the Second Amendment, who actually wrote the Second Amendment. Their scholars are St. George Tucker. Now, St. George Tucker is the only legitimate scholar on their list. St. George Tucker was an attorney and was an advisor to those who were writing and drafting the Constitution and the Bill of Rights. He wrote a very important treatise on how the Constitution and the Bill of Rights are to be applied in the legal world. He's a very important scholar. Quite unfortunately, when they refer to St. George Tucker, they misquote him, misapply him, and completely take his comments out of context to match what they want to hear, right? So St. George Tucker, they're only legitimate of the three. The second, are you ready? An attorney named William Rowell in 1825, right? 1825. We're talking 34 years after ratification. But remember, we're only concerned about post-ratification history. 
And then Joseph's story. Those of you who have been watching us for a very long time, you have to know Joseph's story was going to be on their list because Joseph's story is the ultimate constitutional revisionist. Joseph's story is the father of federal supremacy and the father of judicial supremacy. He's a Supreme Court justice who rewrites constitutional interpretation to make the federal government and the judiciary supreme. So that was their historians. So let me go ahead and read to you the three historians that our Supreme Court should have been referring to when trying to understand the proper application of the Second Amendment. We don't need an interpretation of the Second Amendment. It's not written in Mandarin Chinese. We need an application. And these three gentlemen, just three, there are many more who wrote contemporaneous to this. These three gentlemen will teach us what this is all about. The first is George Mason. Give me a thumbs up, Christian, when George Mason is up there, please. George Mason. It's titled, Who Are the Militia? Right? A well-regulated militia being necessary for the security of the free state. Who are the militia? George Mason says, When the resolution of enslaving America was formed in Great Britain, the British Parliament was advised by an artful man who was governor of Pennsylvania, to disarm the people that it was the best and most effectual way to enslave them, but that they should do it, they should not do it openly, but weaken them and let them sink gradually. See, the governor of Pennsylvania was advising the British Parliament in the mid-1740s, hey, guess what? If you want to get these American colonists under control, what you got to do is disarm them. But don't show up door to door to disarm them and, and collect their guns because they'll shoot you in the face. What you need to do is disarm them over time, weaken them gradually so they don't even know it, maybe through regulations. That's the best way to enslave them. This is what our founders knew, that disarming the people, government disarming the people was a mechanism to enslave them. That's what they knew. Here's what he says. I ask, he continues, who are the militia? They consist now of the whole people except a few public officers. But I cannot say who will be the militia of the future day if that paper on the table gets no alteration. The militia of the future day may not consist of all classes, high and low and rich and poor. All right, bring me back, Christian. Listen, guys, you've got to listen to the words of the people who wrote the Second Amendment to know why they wrote it, that it is a straight jacket for regulation, contrary to what Justice Kavanaugh, contrary to what this majority court, what well, what the whole court believes. It is a 9-0 opinion that your right to keep and bear arms is not a right, it's a permission from the government. Those who wrote it said the exact opposite. It's not about, and then they go into talk, talk about how um, you can be limited because you can't carry scary guns, right? No, they literally talk about the fact that you cannot carry guns that are scary, that regulations on things that are unusual and frightening are okay. 
that you can't carry what's usually carried, like large arms or whatever, right? So now we're going to hear from Noah Webster, okay? Let me know when you got that one up, Christian, Noah Webster. Noah Webster, in 1788, helped write the Second Amendment. He says, before a standing army can rule, the people must be disarmed as they are in almost every kingdom in Europe. The supreme power in America cannot enforce unjust laws by the sword. Why? Because the whole body of the people are armed. Not only are the whole body of the people armed, but, he says, they constitute a force superior to any band of regular troops that can be raised on any pretense in the United States. So this whole myth about how the government should be authorized and is justified in regulating what kind of scary guns, what kind of big guns we can carry is completely abolished and destroyed by a man who actually ratified the Second Amendment, who helped write and ratify the Second Amendment. He's like, no, uh-uh, uh-uh. Everybody's supposed to be armed and we're supposed to outarm the government. That's what he says. All right, put that one back up there, Christian. We're going to continue reading it. He says, a force at the command of Congress can execute no laws, what like the IRS SWAT team or the ATF SWAT team. Those are forces at the command of Congress, right? No force at the command of Congress can execute. Uh, he says, a force at the command of Congress can execute no laws, but such as the people perceive to be just and constitutional. For the people will possess the power and the jealousy of the people will instantly inspire the inclination to resist the execution of a law which appears to them unjust and oppressive. Ooh, wait. Uh, uh, hey, Christian, no Webster didn't mention anything about robbers and rapists, did he? He's talking about controlling the government because we outarm them, controlling them from slavery, controlling them from ruling us with a standing army, controlling of them from making right, laws that remove our rights. Well, the last one we're going to hear from is Richard Henry Lee, who is writing the letters from the federal farmer to the republic. Okay. And this is just a segment, and this has to do with well-regulated, right? What does the well-regulated militia mean? And he tells us, Whereas to preserve liberty, it is essential that the whole body of the people, essential that the whole body of the people always possess arms. Are you catching a trend here? Not the part of the population the government gives permission to. The whole population. The ones who live respectfully law-abiding and don't take someone's life outside self-defense, destroy someone else's property, right? The whole body of the people must always possess arms. If something is essential, can you do without it? No. If you're always doing something, is there ever a moment when you're not doing it? Because you see, if you have to have a permission slip, and the government can say, you can hear, but not hear, then how can you always? He said, essential to the preservation of liberty 
that the whole body of the people always possess arms. So if you want to preserve liberty, then the whole body of the people must have the opportunity to always possess arms. But on the contrary, if your goal is to destroy liberty, then you want to ensure only a part of the approved population can carry arms only where the government wants them to carry. See how that works? So we have to understand that the history, the intent is found, the intent is found in the history, but history is not always indicative of intent. So what we have is a Supreme Court that goes through great lengths to talk about much, much history without actually going into the history that's actually relevant to the intent and application of the Constitution. Now, kudos to Clarence Thomas for pointing out quite boldly that it is in American history, the deprivation of the right to bear arms most importantly enforced on minorities to keep them minorities and keep them in, out of power, right? He says, uh, let's see, even before the Civil War commenced in 1861, this court indirectly affirmed the importance of the right to keep and bear arms in public. Writing for the Court of Dred Scott, Chief Justice Taney offered what he thought was a parade of horribles that would result from recognizing that free blacks were citizens of the United States. If blacks were citizens, Taney fretted, they would be entitled to privileges and immunities of citizens, including the right to keep and carry arms whenever they want. See, he even in the midst of denying segments of the population the right to keep and bear arms, why did they want to deny the uh, Black Americans their right to keep and bear arms so they could keep them oppressed, so they could keep them under subjection, right? Why do they want to keep limit your right to keep and bear arms now? So you can be oppressed and under subjection. But even in those days when they were trying to impose that on the minority of the population, they recognized that, the, that citizens were entitled to the right to keep and bear arms wherever they wanted. Wherever they wanted. And so what we have is, was this one, two, three, four, five pages of Clarence Thomas explaining to us why government regulating our right to keep and bear arms is dangerous while at the same time saying it's okay for the government to regulate in our arms if they give us a good reason. Little bit of double-minded this there. I'm not sure where, you know, they're missing the point, but that's, that's the bottom line. Now, Justice Breyer, Justice Breyer, you got that Supreme Court picture up there, Christian? Throw up that, the picture of the justices. 
Justice Breyer, who is, you know, sort of grayed out in this picture because he's not sitting anymore, writes the dissenting opinion. And he writes a 50 plus page dissenting opinion that is utterly and completely stunning. The very first sentence in 2020, 45,222 Americans were killed by firearms. See the Center for Disease Control. Since the start of this year, there have been 277 reports of mass shootings, an average of more than one per day. He spends, I don't even know how many pages giving statistics and telling us why it's necessary, why it's necessary for the government to regulate our right to keep and bear arms. I want to show you, if we're talking about history, I want to show you what, what um, William Pitt the Younger wrote in 1783. Christian has a really nice slide for you. And I'm going to read it to you for those who are just listening. Was it not necessity, which had always been the plea of every illegal exertion of power or exercise of oppression? Let me go ahead and repeat that for you, because this is a very important, important phrase that we must understand. Was it, did you find it, Christian? This is the one you wrote. Was it not necessary, which had all, was it, I'm sorry, excuse me, was it not necessity, which had always been the plea of every illegal exertion of power or exercise of oppression? Was not necessity the pretense of every usurpation? Necessity was the plea for every infringement of human freedom. It was the argument of tyrants, and it was the creed of slaves. The entire dissenting opinion falls into that category of an argument for tyrants or a creed for slaves. And it's almost humorous because, you know, they wanted to play off the majority court's reliance upon history. And they and he, he puts in history, he says, the question before us concerns the extent Okay. The question before us concerns the extent which the Second Amendment prevents democratically elected officials from enacting laws to address the serious problem of gun violence. Well, I'm pretty sure the answer to the question is shall not be infringed. But remember, the court has a problem with that today. But I want to wrap up this session with the historical hysterical references that Breyer gives to justify government regulations, okay? He says, the English Bill of Rights do not protect an individual's right to possess, own, or use arms for private purposes, such as defend a home against burglars. The English Bill of Rights didn't do that? 
The English Bill of Rights, written in 1789. The English Bill of Rights, signed by a king. We are supposed to think that's relevant history, that a king didn't want their people to have the right to possess arms, to own or use arms for private purposes, such as to defend the home against kings now. This is our standard. Oh, it doesn't It doesn't stop there. No, no, no. It doesn't stop. Um, let's see. The, we have this whole section beginning in section four. The court's application of its history-only test in the case demonstrates its very pitfalls described. Historical evidence reveals a 700 Anglo-American tradition of regulating public carriage of firearms in general and concealed or concealable firearms in particular. 700 years Anglo-American. How about kings denying you your rights? Kings are the standards. Law regulating public carriage of weapons in the 13th century. Uh, kings. Similar laws remained on the books through the ratification of the second and 14th amendments through the present day. Yeah. Through the ratification of the 14th Amendment, and because uh, we wanted to keep minorities from keeping guns. And by the way, similar regulations were not in place during the right, uh, during the ratification of the Second Amendment. That is a complete and utter falsehood, a misapplication of that history. And I will close with this because never in my life have I heard a Supreme Court justice actually say that Supreme Court judges are not smart enough to do something. And I have right here page 26 of Breyer's dissent in writing telling us that judges are not smart enough to know history. They're not smart enough to read what the founders wrote. He says, judges are far less accustomed to resolving difficult historical questions. Legal experts typically have little experience answering contested historical questions or applying those answers to resolve contemporary problems. Um, difficult? What they can't read? You can't read what I just read to you from Noah Webster and from George Mason and from Richard Henry Lee. You can't go read the ratification debates because it doesn't take rocket science level understanding of history to be able to read these things and understand them. They wrote in basic, simple English. I don't think, Christian, when I read those, those quotes and you were, you know, you saw them long before everybody else did, did were there any words in there you didn't understand? I mean, these are six great English people. And for Justice Breyer to tell us it's too difficult for him to understand what they wrote, maybe we should understand that he wasn't qualified for his job. Maybe because they're not taught to go there, right? The court's insistence that judges and lawyers rely nearly exclusively on history to interpret the Second Amendment thus raises a host of troubling questions. Oh, 
and it doesn't raise a host of troubling question that that courts and judges and lawyers must rely nearly exclusively on think tank writers and law journalists and pundits and scholars who absolutely were not there when it was written? That courts and judges and lawyers are to rely nearly exclusively on history post-1850 to interpret their constitution? To rely nearly exclusively on history and writings of people that know nothing about actually the written document itself? So they, it's okay for them to rely nearly exclusively on people who had nothing to do with the writing of the contract. And it's okay for them to nearly exclusively ignore those who did. Well, there you have it, people. According to Justice Breyer... How English kings ran gun control is the perfect model for America. That's what Breyer tells us. English kings for 700 years had the right idea on gun control. Not the founders who actually wrote the Second Amendment, but the kings they fought for freedom from. Well, there you have it. The good, the bad, the ugly... The basic, the deep, and the understanding of New York State Rifle v. Bruin. If you want this education, you need to go to libertyfirstsociety.com. I have several courses on the right to keep and bear arms where you can hear more from the reliable sources on what this means. Don't be the guy that just runs around saying the Second Amendment is my permit. Don't be the guy that goes around saying, shall not, shall not be infringed. Be the smartest person in the room who can actually explain what it means, even to idiots like Breyer. Well, thank you so much for joining me today. This has been Wake Up Special Breaking News Edition. We're so happy to have you here with us today. Uh, join us tomorrow for our regularly scheduled podcast. God bless. We hold these truths to be self-evident. That all men are created equal and endowed by their creator with certain alienable rights. We have a power. And we've raised a spoiled brat representative government that needs to be taken to the woodshed. Are you satisfied with the government that owns you? There are churches who refuse to allow us to use their facilities to teach. Unspoken or even sometimes spoken rule that religion and politics don't mix. You wouldn't dare speak out against the government or somehow resist. Christians have to be involved in politics. God commands it. Every turn of event through history hinged one person will stand up 
upon a single person. And then everybody else will stand. A gym member surrounded by a crowd of supporters was placed in handcuffs. A Tampa Bay pastor has been arrested. Sentenced to a week in she jail. She also tore up a cease and desist letter. We have a posterity waiting for us to say. We will not comply so you will be free. We have a chance to fight without bloodshed. But every time we comply, we establish a future where our children will not have that option. Why do we sit down?